Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. One side of the potato pits was white with frost. How wonderful that was. How wonderful. And when we put our ears to the paling post, the music that came out was magical. The light between the ricks of hay and straw was a hole in heaven's gable. An apple tree with its December glinting fruit we saw. O oh, you, Eve were the world that tempted me to eat the knowledge that grew in clay and death the germ within it. Now and then I can remember something of the gay garden that was childhood's. Again, the tracks of cattle to a drinking place, a green stone lying sideways in a ditch, or any common sight, the transfigured face of a beauty that the world did not touch. My father played the melodeon outside at our gate. There were stars in the morning east, and they danced to his music. Across the wild bogs his melodeon called to Lennons and Callans. As I pulled on my trousers in a hurry, I knew some strange thing that had happened. Outside in the cowhouse my mother made the music of milking. The light of her stable lamp was a star and the frost of Bethlehem made it twinkle. A water-hen screeched in the bog. Mass-going feet crunched the wafer ice on the potholes. Somebody wistfully twisted the bellows wheel. My child-poet picked at the letters on the grey stone, in silver the wonder of a Christmas townland, the winking glitter of a frosty dawn. Cassiopeia was over Cassidy's hanging hill. I looked and three wind-bushes rode across the horizon, the three wise kings. And old man passed and said, Can't he make it talk, the melodeon? I hid in the doorway and tightened the belt of my box-pleated coat. I nicked six nicks on the doorpost with my penknife's big blade. There was a little one for cutting tobacco and I was six Christmases of age. My father played the melodeon, my mother milked the cows, and I had a prayer like a white rose pinned on the Virgin Mary's blouse. Hello and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Nolig Honaditch, 
You are very welcome along to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olhan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 104 of the Irish Storytelling Podcast. Today on Fireside, it is a very Fireside Christmas. But before we get down to it, I want to give a big welcome to any new and any returning listeners. If you're a new listener or a recent listener, head right back to the beginning if you're enjoying it. Listen to what we've been building over the last two years, over the last 103 episodes. And if you're a returning listener as always thank you so much you continue to be incredibly welcome and your support has never been more appreciated please do follow me over on instagram at fireside bard email me at the fireside bard at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or just to say hello and please do if you are in a position support the patreon at patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast as we end come to the end of what has been one of the more difficult years for most of us and certainly us in the arts and entertainment industry but the the patreon is there to further this podcast to grow it and to build us into 2021 and there are great plans for it and great plans already in motion and great things that have already happened which will all be revealed hopefully in the next episode or two but as always the patreon is there as an egalitarian model of science kindness it's not going to stop my output of the podcast at all but it is there if you so want to give me a little christmas present of the price of a coffee or a pint that's what you can do there so this is a fireside christmas there's an interesting background to this background to this story or this episode and that is that this episode was meant to come out last year i wrote a fireside christmas for release as the christmas episode last year which some of you may remember those who are listening as long as that that uh, it didn't come out and basically i did record it but i hadn't factored in that my editor at the time jamie he, he was uh, he was obviously entitled to his christmas break himself and he didn't get a chance to to edit it in the build-up to Christmas. He was very busy, busy guy himself with his own things. So naturally, because it didn't come out before Christmas, I thought, I, well, there's no point in releasing it after Christmas if it's a Christmas special. So I thought I would leave it till the following year. But then the recording itself would be too dated, you know. It's... Uh, there was no point in releasing an episode that was me talking a year ago because it was a different world a year ago. Like, it's it's nearly always a different world a year on, but particularly this year. So I took the script and I decided I'd, re, I'd re-record it. And last week we did our episode with the Robin and the Wren, which it kind of became a Christmas special and was... Uh, the Christmas live show that that I will be performing, certainly. But this episode will take more of the form of the Halloween specials, where I dig into a few different sources, usually Irish, but sometimes others, of uh, Christmas stories and poetry and song that that walk the line between folklore and mythology and explore that and just as a little bit of a relief, a little bit of treat and a little bit of variety for Fireside to just sample some of the great literature and stories 
at our disposal. And the opening piece that I did there was called A Christmas Childhood. It's when I think of Irish Christmas poetry, that is the poem that I always think of. It is written by the great Patrick Kavanagh, who is my favourite Irish poet, has been since I studied him in school. And that was actually one of the pieces that I studied. And for those unfamiliar with Kavanagh's work, he is absolutely one that is well worth checking out. He is he was the response and very much the response to Yeats and very much the the anti Yeats you could really say because as we have talked about many times on Fireside, WB Yeats is hugely, massively responsible for how much we do know about Irish mythology and and Irish folklore in a modern sense. But that did come at a price. That came at the price of him romanticizing the peasant Irish. And Yeats had this strong belief and strong desire to get closer to his Irish roots. He was very much very much Irish himself, but he grew up in in London and it was very much a Protestant Anglo-Irish family and it was his mother's side that was the Sligo connection and he would spend his summers in Sligo and then spend much of his adult life in Dublin. But Yeats was constantly trying to get back to this rural, earthy connection to Ireland that might not have ever existed. And so he struggled, for example, to to speak Irish. He never mastered the Irish tongue himself, which he always did. But obviously his his impact on not just on the world of poetry, he's considered by many to be the greatest poet since Shakespeare, which is no no mild mild thing at all. But he he did he is controversial because he romanticized these peasants by suggesting that they all believed in fairies and that they all believed in the other world even when he was writing in the in the late 1800s and the early 20th in the early 20th century and when he died in 1939 i think it was the year yeats died that was around the time when a young poet a young farmer poet from Monaghan was beginning to write, and that was Patrick Kavanagh. And Patrick Kavanagh grew up in rural Monaghan. He had lived on a farm his entire life, was from a very big family. So one of my favourite Kavanagh anecdotes is that he once walked to Dublin from Monaghan to meet a publisher. Anyone who's from Ireland or lives in Ireland knows that that is a very big walk. It took him two days, and... uh, there is some rumours that he was barefoot, but uh, I think he might have had the good, the mass shoes on for that. I suppose he met this publisher and he was so hungry, but he was too proud to ask for food. So he was offered a cup of tea and he was dying to even be offered a biscuit. But this was the kind of dogged determination that Patrick Kavanagh had. But while being, while admiring the colossal colossal impact that Yeats had every poet since every Irish poet since Yeats has been trying to escape Yeats's shadow and Kavanagh was in the immediate shadow of that but Kavanagh's response was that when he read Yeats's rural poetry he didn't see anything that he knew he didn't see anything familiar he didn't think that it was an accurate depiction of rural Ireland and so Kavanagh wanted to write the reality of that 
And how he did that was he... It could be said that Yeats mythologized rural Ireland. Well, Kavanagh did that, but started from the very much the everyday. He started, like, he wrote about the very specifics of bogs and of farm life and of cattle, but he still managed to make it, as the title of one of his great poems is, epic. He he wove, you know, references to to Greek mythology and he made like a single field, an entire battlefield, you know. He, he he's a magnificent, magnificent poet and I think A Christmas Childhood really captures that essence of of Kavanagh that he remembering being six on Christmas Day and this incredible tapestry that he paints of not just of Christmas but of farm life. You see the day-to-day of living on on this farm as well as the wonder of it. Mixing, obviously, there's a good bit of Christian doctrine christian imagery which is inescapable it's christmas because christmas is a christian holiday certainly certainly is now and certainly was in ireland at that time and so we have but we also then have the greek mixed in here we have a wonderful wonderful stanza where he talks about cassiopeia the constellation the star in the stars and in the same Stanza, he talks about the horizon as the three wise kings, these three wind bushes as the three wise kings, and he mixes between the Greek mythology and the Christian doctrine and then the earthy realness of the farm life. And <coughs> it's, to my mind, the best Irish Christmas poem anyway, and I thought, couldn't think of a better way to start off the the fireside christmas special and this was meant to start it off last year as well but it maintains it maintains a strong and i think it still has the impact so if that isn't a poem that you had heard before i hope you enjoyed it and if you haven't considered kavanagh's work before i hope you'll give it a go uh no undoubtedly kavanagh's most famous poem is on raglan road far more famous as it is as a song by luke kelly and the dubliners and it was voted Ireland's favourite folk song as well more recently and he wrote that Kavanagh wrote that poem for this unrequited lover that he had Dr Hilda Moriarty and it was her who said to him would you stop writing about stony grey soil and bogs Patrick and he said okay Hilda I will immortalise you in in song and he did but the next piece of A Fireside Christmas could be a strong departure, but maybe not, considering we did Frankenstein for the Halloween special. This time last year, I was in Dublin's Gate Theatre performing in Jack Thorne's adaptation of A Christmas Carol, which was an incredible way to spend a Christmas anyway, performing in the Christmas show. But uh, it was also my first time working in that theatre. It's an immensely historic theatre over here, and I was very honoured to to get my foot in the door there and... I just had a wonderful, wonderful time. And A Christmas Carol has... It's such an immensely popular story and has been adapted such a an astonishing amount of times without somehow losing 
its punch as a story because it's just the perfect story. There are definitely its detractors and, you know, people who don't like it and think it's overrated. But I think even if you don't like A Christmas Carol, you have to admit that it is narratively pretty, pretty perfect, you know. You can't really knock its beats. There are three adaptations of A Christmas Carol on Disney Plus at the moment, for example. And they are the Jim Carrey one from 2009. There's the Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is where Scrooge McDuck really exploded before before DuckTales. And then there is my personal favourite, my personal favourite adaptation of anything ever, A Muppet Christmas Carol. And I watched the Mickey's Christmas Carol last week and I hadn't seen it in years. And that's only a 20... 25 minute short and it's astonishing that it still gets pretty much the whole story it gets all the beats and nothing's really and you can you can condense it to that that amount and then the rest is just exploration like Jack Thorne's adaptation that I was in explored chose to explore more Scrooge's relationship with his sister who died uh, chose to explore his more his relationship with Belle, the relationship with the father. It kept this structure and it kept these beats, but it had its own way of looking at it. And that's why I think it was such a, a incredible, incredible adaptation. And it's still performed every year for the last five years in the Old Vic. Even this year, it's happening virtually with uh, Andrew Lincoln from The Walking Dead and Love Actually, of course. But in and in my Muppet Christmas Carol, of course, it chooses to explore that through music as well. It has incredible, incredible songs written by Paul Williams that are the the Christmas songs. Myself and my friend often talk as one of the great lyrics is uh, a cup of kindness that will always remember it as the summer of the soul in December. One of the great, great all time lyrics by Paul Williams there. But why am I talking about A Christmas Carol and why am I talking about it last year? Well, A Christmas Carol was an immensely successful novel for Charles Dickens, even when it, when it was released. But it wasn't his first foray into writing Christmas stories. Christmas Carol is actually based on another story, another short story, also written by Charles Dickens. And it was the success of this story that made both that made Dickens think there was more here and there was more to be explored. And I'm going to read to you a passage of this short story that it's amazing to see. It's It feels like very early Dickens, but it's very much Dickens. And you can see, you can see where Christmas Carol came from and you can see how rooted it is in folklore. And this story particularly feels like the Hunchback of Not Grafton. It feels like many stories we've encountered of encounters with the other folk here in Ireland. But I won't give any more context for that because if you haven't heard it, I'd like you to experience experience it for the first time. But this is The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton on Fireside. The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton In an old abbey town, down in this part of the country, a long, long while ago, 
so long that the story must be a true one because our great-grandfathers implicitly believed it. There officiated as sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. It by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world, and I once had the honour of being on intimate terms with a mute who, in private life and off-duty, was as comical and jocose a little fellow as ever chirped out a devil-may-care song, without a hitch but in his memory, or drained off a good stiff glass without stopping for breath. But notwithstanding these precedents to the contrary, Gabriel Grubb, was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow, a morose and lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself, and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large, deep waistcoat pocket, and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill-humour as it was difficult to meet without feeling something the worse for. A little before twilight, one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself towards the old churchyard, for he had got a grave to finish by next morning, and, feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirits, perhaps, if he went on with his work at once. As he went his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of the blazing fires gleam through the old casements, and heard the loud laughs and the cheerful shouts of those who were assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for next day's cheer, and smelled the numerous savoury odours consequent thereupon as they steamed up from the kitchen windows in clouds. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb, and when groups of children bounded out of the houses, tripped across the road, and were met before they could knock at the opposite door by half a dozen curly-headed little rascals who crowded round them as they flocked upstairs to spend the evening in their Christmas games, Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp as he thought of measles, scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation besides. In this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strode along, returning a short, sullen growl to the good-humoured greetings of such as his neighbours as now and then passed him, until he turned into the dark lane which led to the churchyard. Now, Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching the dark lane, because it was generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place, into which the townspeople did not much care to go, except in broad daylight and when the sun was shining. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out some jolly song about a merry Christmas, in this very sanctuary which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey and the time of the shaven-headed monks. As Gabriel walked on, and the voice drew nearer, 
He found it proceeded from a small boy who was hurrying along to join one of those little parties in the old street, and who, partly to keep himself company, and partly to prepare himself for the occasion, was shouting out the song at the highest pitch of his lungs. So Gabriel waited until the boy came up and then dodged him into a corner and rapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times just to teach him to modulate his voice. And as the boy hurried away with his hand to his head, singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, sat down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. But the earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no very easy matter to break it up and shovel it out, and although there was a moon, it was a very young one, and shed little light upon the grave which was in the shadow of the church. At any other time, these obstacles would have made Gabriel Grubb very moody and miserable. But he was so well pleased with having stopped the small boy's singing that he took his little head out of the scanty progress he had made and looked down into the grave when he had finished for the night with grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things, "'Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, "'a few feet of cold earth when life is done, "'a stone at the head, a stone at the feet, "'a rich, juicy meal for worms to eat, "'rank grass overhead and damp clay around, "'brave lodgings for one, these in holy ground.' <sighs> "'Ha-ha!' laughed Gabriel Grubb, as he sat himself down on a flat tombstone which was a favourite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas! A Christmas box! Ha, ha, ha! Ha, ha, ha! repeated a voice which sounded close behind him. Gabriel paused in some alarm in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips and looked round. The bottom of the oldest grave about him was not more still and quiet than the churchyard in the pale moonlight. The cold hoar frost glistened on the tombstones and sparkled like rows of gems among the stone carvings of the old church. The snow lay hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth so white and smooth a cover that it seemed as if corpses lay there, hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profound tranquillity of the solemn scene. Sound itself appeared to be frozen up. All was so cold and still. It was the echoes, said Gabriel Grubb, raising the bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. On an upright tombstone close to him was a strange, unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. 
His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His sinewy arms were bare, and his hands rested on his knees. On his short, round body he wore a close covering ornamented with small slashes. A short cloak dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks which served the goblin in lieu of ruff or neckerchief, and his shoes curled up at his toes into long points. On his head he wore a broad-brimmed sugar-loaf hat garnished with a single feather, the hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked as if he had sat on the same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. He was sitting perfectly still. His tongue was put out as if in derision, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb was paralyzed and could make no reply. "'What do you do here on Christmas Eve?' said the goblin sternly. "'I... I came to dig a grave, sir,' stammered Gabriel Grubb. "'What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this?' cried the goblin. "'Gabriel Grubb!' "'Gabriel Grubb!' screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully round. Nothing was to be seen. "'What have you got in that bottle?' said the goblin. "'Hollins, sir,' replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it off the smugglers, and he thought that perhaps his questioner might be the excise department of the goblins.' "'Who drinks Hollands alone, and in a churchyard, on such a night as this?' said the goblin. "'Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb!' exclaimed the wild voices again. The goblin leered maliciously at the terrified sexton, and then raising his voice exclaimed, "'And who, then, is our fair and lawful prize?' To this inquiry the invisible chorus replied, in a strain that sounded like the voices of many choristers singing to the mighty swell of the old church organ, a strain that seemed borne to the sexton's ears upon a wild wind, and to die away as it passed onward, but the burden of the reply was still the same. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! The goblin grinned a broader grin than before as he said, "'Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this?' The sexton gasped for breath. "'What do you think of this, Gabriel?' said the goblin, kicking up his feet in the air on either side of the tombstone and looking at the turned-up points with as much complacency as if he had been contemplating the most fashionable pair of Wellingtons in all Bond Street. "'It's... "'It's very curious, sir,' replied the sexton, half dead with fright. "'Very curious and very pretty, but but I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please.' "'Work?' said the goblin. "'What work?' "'The grave, sir, making the grave,' stammered the sexton. 
Oh, the grave, eh? said the goblin. Who makes graves at a time when all other men are merry and takes pleasure in it? Again, the mysterious voices replied, Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! I am afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin, thrusting his tongue farther into his cheek than ever, and a most astonishing tongue it was. I am afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. Under favour, sir, replied the horror-stricken sexton. I don't think they can, sir. They, they don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have, replied the goblin. We know the man with the sulky face and grim scowl that came down the street tonight, throwing his evil looks at the children and grasping his burying spade the tighter. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. We know him. Here, the goblin gave a loud, shrill laugh, which the echoes returned twentyfold, and throwing his legs up in the air, stood upon his head, or rather upon the very point of his sugar-loaf hat, on the narrow edge of the tombstone, whence he threw a somerset with extraordinary agility right to the sexton's feet, at which he planted himself in the attitude of which tailors generally sit upon the shopboard. I, I'm, I'm afraid I must leave you, sir, said the sexton, making an effort to move. Leave us, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb going to leave us. Ho, Folks, as you all know, Fireside is a proud son of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which is Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts and a loving home for the creative and indeed the curious. There are so many other podcasts I could recommend to you on the network, some of which inspired me to approach Headstuff myself. Here's a taste of one you might enjoy. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first pod rooney And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels, here and there, all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon, but loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell, including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian, Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet. Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy. Drada Homeless Aid. Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. And that is about nearly about half the story of the goblin who ate the sexton on a fireside Christmas. And I hate to leave it. I would have loved to have done the entire story. 
but it was probably just too much of an ass. We would have been here. We would have been here far too long. But I think there was enough there to really give you the impression of the story and really for you to see how much of a Christmas carol was in this original story that Dickens wrote. Because I, when I got cast in A Christmas Carol, I bought... I went out and I tried to find a good edition of it to reread before starting rehearsals. And it was A Christmas Carol and other Christmas stories that that Dickens had written. So I read these few other ones and this was the one that really caught my attention because it seemed so much like a folktale and so much like A Christmas Carol. We have Gabriel Grob, this very much this... (laughs) <laughs> this proto Scrooge, if you will, he almost uh, he makes Scrooge look sound at the beginning, like the fact that he just takes pleasure in disease and grave robbing. There's one thing about Scrooge wanting to hoard his money, and I suppose we don't get any context or backstory to Gabriel Grubb, so he doesn't become a sympathetic character to us like Scrooge does. But he is just this dastardly, malevolent folk figure who, nonetheless. We, he gets truly, truly horrified by this wonderful goblin figure who is described very much like a changeling, you know, with the long sinewy arms and how he's dressed as very fairy-like, very, very otherworld. And he has his dominions. I, I quite like that it specifically says he has a deep voice because I think goblins, particularly in, in literature and in film and TV, they're often done with a very high-pitched voice as most little creatures are when in reality most fairies were meant to be adult size or certainly human size and yes we have this goblin as the the jacob marley figure and then we have gabriel grubbs being spirited away or taken into the goblin world i won't say what happens i'm sure you can imagine how it happens in the end particularly if you're familiar with the story of a christmas carol but i this was such a pleasure it was a challenge but it was a pleasure as well to read because you just really see what a master of writing prose dickens was which might seem like the most nothing understatement ever but just even reading these out loud he has these paragraphs that are often only two or sometimes even one sentence like i'll try let's see is the first like the first the first sentence isn't too long but like to give an example of this so In an old abbey town down in this part of the country a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one because our great-grandfathers implicitly believed it, there officiated a sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. That's one sentence right there. And he just packs so, so much, so much into each sentence. And we... I think I, when I'm writing these episodes, because I write them to perform them and I write them that you will hear them, not have them in front of you, I don't have to do quite as much description. And of course, Dickens was to be read in front of you. And he does more than any voice or any performance could with his just his careful, careful, watertight selection of language. Like I, I, I toyed with cutting this story and editing it down to try and get the whole story in but just 
he's made it too hard. He's made it too hard to cut even a sentence of it, and a sentence of it would be quite a lot, a large chunk indeed. But it feels so delightful to have in your mouth and to try and wrangle these these sentences. In A Christmas Carol, we all had... We all shared the part of the narrator, so we were all the chorus as well as playing characters, or so as playing Fred, Scrooge's nephew, but I was also playing the chorus uh, in between, and so the chorus acted as the narrator, so we shared out the, the narration that was all verbatim from the novel. But there was just one line I had that was such a mouthful that really gets the Dickens sentence structure home which was he felt he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention and that was always every night it was the careful place of where to take the breath to try and get that into one sentence or to get that into one breath or if it wasn't going to be in one breath where to breathe in the middle of it to not totally break the rhythm of the sentence and that was that one line was like my challenge for that entire run and but a beautiful beautiful line and a beautiful perfect like line that just evokes so much and that's what you really get for all of us so I do hope that if you hadn't heard that story or read that story that listening to the first half of it there will make you want it's all you see all in the public domain you can read us on any website online um, I'm sure there are other audiobooks of it on Audible. But that was my little stake in the claim of one of the best Christmas short stories I've ever had. And because I had never really heard of it before discussing it, I, I didn't think it was as well known. And it just seemed very appropriate for a fireside Christmas. And so I went with it. And it's actually quite nice doing it a year after doing a Christmas carol because I do miss miss doing that show immensely. It was... Uh, it was a great, great experience with lovely, lovely people and some really great friends, hopefully for life now. Um, and so it was nice to revisit that world. But to finish off A Fireside Christmas, you all know me, you know I'm a song and dance man at heart and where possible I always like to finish with a song. So I'd like to think can finish with... I think the greatest Christmas song. This is my interpretation of an interpretation of this song. I was taking a ramble there about three years ago. It was the middle of the week, I think it was. It was halfway between Pukon and Nina. I was looking for the Shannon. And I ended up in a mushroom field near Gortalaka. I wandered into a fairy ring. Jesus, I couldn't get out. So I'm walking in circles for three days and three nights like a lunatic. I see a man walking on. I say, here John, gives a hand to get us out of this fairy ring. So he took me by the hand of Jesus and he took me out onto the road. Where are you going, says I. I don't know, says he. Jesus, I'll go there too. So he took me into Paddy Kennedy's pub in Pukon, into the snug, yeah. And then he called for a drink, and then I called for a drink, and then he called for another drink, and I called for two drinks, and then we sat down and we had a drink. 
And old tom- tongues began to loosen, and old thoughts began to flow. He read me a few of his poems, and Jesus, they were marvellous. After a few drinks. I sang him a song, and he put on the jukebox. But he sang me this one song, Jesus, I'd never heard a song like it before. And how did it go? It went. It was Christmas Eve, babe. In the drunk tank An old man said, son I won't see another one And then we sang a song The rare old mountain dew I turned my eyes away And thought about Got on a lucky one Came in at eighteen to one I've got a feeling This year's for me and you So happy Christmas Oh I love you baby There's gonna be good times When all our dreams come true They've got cars big as bars They've got rivers of gold But the wind blows right through It's no place for the old When you first took my hand On the cold Christmas Eve Oh, I told you that Broadway was waiting for me You were handsome and pretty Queen of New York City When the band finished playing The crowd out for more Sinatra was swinging And all the drunks they were singing Oh, we kissed on the corner And danced round the floor And the boys of the NYPD choir Were singing Galway Bay And the bells were ringing out for Christmas Day I could have been someone And so could anyone I took my dreams from you When I first met you I kept them with me, babe I put them with my own I can't make it all alone I built my dreams around you And the boys of the NYPD choir were singing Galway Bay And the bells were ringing out For Christmas Day I love you baby There's gonna be good times When all our dreams come true So happy Christmas I love you baby these are the words from Shane McGowan and Paddy, the snug of Paddy Kennedy's pub and puck on and I took him by the hand and I kissed him on the lips and I said, Shane, I love you baby too.
And that was my interpretation of the Christy Moore interpretation of the great Shane McGowan's fairy tale of New York. The ultimate Christmas song, the ultimate Irish fairy tale. And my favourite version of it is that Christy version because of this wonderful story that he tells before it that has become as much a part of the fabric of that song as when he starts singing itself. And that is a version from Christie's very iconic Live at the Point, which is one of my big, like the Clancy Brothers Live at Carnegie Hall is one of my all-time favourite live performances because Christie's particularly is like one narrative. It's one story that he flows between all of the songs and it's just like one big piece that whole concert and it's just him and the guitar and the bow on in front of a massive massive audience and there were very historic few gigs here but i love i love that version i love performing that version and i hope you enjoyed it too and i hope you enjoyed the whole fireside christmas special we had a christmas childhood by patrick kavanagh we had the goblin that stole a sexton by charles dickens and we had Fairy Tale in New York. It was a very fireside Christmas, a lovely selection there. I hope you all enjoyed it. And listen, I hope every one of you does have a very happy Christmas at this. It's a very difficult, it's a very hard time of year and can be a very isolating, lonely time of year for so many. And particularly, particularly this year. So be well, be kind, be good to each other. I hope you get to spend time with some family or some loved ones, whoever that may be. As always, thank you so much to everyone at Headstuff, Alan, Patty and Connor. Thank you all for listening. Follow me over on Instagram at FiresideBard. Uh, contact me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. If you can, please donate to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash firesidepodcast. I will see you all next week. We will have uh, we will have our last episode before the new year, which will be another myth or a folktale. I think it would probably be a folktale, probably be The Bard and The King of the Cats, which is uh, one of my new favourites. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.